sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? Well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up. Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports. With the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Giannis fires one down and an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lynn Baez, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, wassalamu alaikum, good morning, good abend, all that good stuff. Namaste. Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of great things to discuss and get down today in the world of sports. Before I do, as always, if you could, anywhere where you're listening to your favorite podcast, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, iTunes, do me a favor, Wendell's World in Sports, download Subscribe, rate, review, most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. If you could do that, man, it would make my day and then some. Um, Next week, there will be no podcast. Why? Because I am going on a cruise to Cabo San Lucas, six days, man. Looking forward to it. I'm going to be enjoying the Gaffieri hamburgers and fries. I'm going to be enjoying the Ranchos Wincheros, or however you say it. I'm going to be enjoying the shrimp tacos and burritos. I'm going to be enjoying the relaxation. I'm going to be enjoying, enjoying everything. Overlooking the balcony, looking at the Pacific Ocean, going down to Cabo, going up to Ensenada, going to enjoy it. So, yeah, for next week, there will be no podcast. But for those who might be getting ideas, because my abode will be not used, I just want you to know that I do have neighbors with guns. And I've given them permission that if you see anybody hanging around my place, hanging around my crib trying to get in, you blow their brains out and then call the police. We shoot and kill first and then ask questions later if you're trying to get into my place. Why would you even try to steal anything from my place? If you are a burglar in training, the only reason why you would try to break into my place is just for practice. There is nothing here. I'm telling you right now, there is nothing here. There is nothing of value in this house besides me. And on a good day, I'm only worth a buck fifty. So come on, man. Try somewhere else. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So a lot of good stuff to get down on in the world of sports. That's always we start with week four of the NFL, uh, whether the storyline for week four of the NFL, well, I'm going to come right out and say it. Many people might say it's the San Francisco 49ers. Many people might say it's the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm saying right now that the best team in the NFL are the Buffalo Bills. It's the Buffalo Bills. After that performance they put on, after they basically buffaloed the Miami Dolphins 48-20, to I'm saying it right now, they're the best team in the NFL. And right now, after the month of September, 
Josh Allen is the best player in the league. He's better than Patrick Mahomes. He's better than Tua Tagovailoa. He's better than Christian McCaffrey. He's better than Micah Parsons. He's better than Patrick Mahomes. I said that before. Patrick Mahomes twice. He's better than. So when I one of the reasons why I even say that the Buffalo Bills are the best team in the NFL, I know that people are going to point to the 49ers. Their four games have been dominant. Their defense have been dominant. You see the weapons that they have on office, Deepu Samuels and Brendan Ayuk and George Kittle and, of course, Christian McCaffrey. The reason why I'm putting the Bills as number one, despite their opening season loss to the New York Jets, number one, because it was week one of the season, first game of the season, but mainly it's the disparity between quarterbacks. When you take a look at Brock Purdy, who's been doing a good job, who has been doing a solid job, who has been doing a good job as a game manager for the San Francisco 49ers. There's going to come a time, there's going to come a place. Maybe it's going to be this upcoming Sunday night against the Dallas Cowboys. There's going to come a time, there's going to come a place where Brock Purdy is going to have to win them a game. That Brock Purdy is basically going to have to do what Josh Allen is going to be asked to do for the Buffalo Bills maybe 8 to 12 times this season, which is basically be the star of the show, be the main reason, be the bedrock, be the foundation for the team's victory like Josh Allen was on Sunday against Miami, even though, even though the co-stars to that demolition that happened on Sunday against Miami, it was just not just Josh Allen, but there were other also uh, players in starring roles. But Brock Purdy is not the guy just yet who I believe could be that guy. Now, I know Aaron Rodgers went on Pat McAfee and talked about how well Brock Purdy has been playing. And I'm not saying that Brock Purdy is a scrub by any means. But what I'm saying is when you're dis discussing who is the best team in the NFL as of right now, and the reason why I put the Buffalo Bills over the San Francisco 49ers right now, again, despite the fact of the strong defense the history of strong defense and the present strong defense of the San Francisco 49ers and the weapons that the 49ers have on offense, even more so than the Buffalo Bills. The most important player on the field, especially on offense, which is the quarterback, I just think the difference between Josh Allen at the level that he's playing at right now and Brock Purdy is great enough to where I would have the Buffalo Bills as the number one team in the NFL. And again, it's early in the season. We just got through with the month of September heading over on now to October. Now, what did I tell you time and time again? When you speak about the NFL for the first four to six weeks, any team, I don't care as of right now if we're talking about the Buffalo Bills. I don't care if we're talking about the Miami Dolphins. I don't care if we're talking about the San Francisco 49ers or the Philadelphia Eagles or at the other end of the spectrum, the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Cincinnati Bengals or the New England Patriots, as of right now, when we're speaking about trying to put in some type of concrete the obituary or the presentation of what the 2023 season is all about, don't go there just yet in terms of it's already set in stone. That this team is going to do this. This team is going to do that. This team is going to be good. This team is going to be bad. This team is going to be average. This team should be tanking. This team should be rebuilding. This team should be giving up. This team should be looking toward the playoffs. This team is a Super Bowl contender. This team is one of the elites. Not just yet. Evidence to the contrary, either side. If you're speaking about those teams and trying to put those labels, trying to put those thoughts and opinions into them, evidence to where you're going in the right direction, yes. But is it a fatal complete? Is it a complete affirmation through four games 
that the Buffalo Bills are going to be the best team in the NFL at the end of the season, that the New England Patriots are going to be one of the most disappointing teams at the end of the season, that the Chicago Bears, despite what they have shown and what they showed in the second half against the Denver Broncos, that they're going to be the worst team in the NFL as of right now. You can't say that. Right now, you just can't say it. It may come to fruition, but as of right now, you really can't say that. So, yeah, man, in the game of the – I guess you could say so far the game of the season, early in the season. Remember going into the fourth week, reading, starting to read Chapter 4 in this book, in this novel, in this play, in this film called the NFL 2023 season, that we all came into the next chapter. We all came into the next week. We all came into the next – uh, screen. We all came into the next time as the Miami Dolphins being, if not the best, one of the two best teams in the NFL, mainly because of their offense. Tua Tagovailoa going into week three or after week three had been the best player in the league when you speak about the statistical prominence that he had, about the beatdown. The last thing that we remember in terms of week three was the, or the most impactful thing that we remember from week three. After week three was that 70 to 20 beatdown that the Miami Dolphins gave the Denver Broncos and the way Tua was playing, the fact that in week one he had thrown for 466 yards and now dueled Justin Herbert, and the fact that Miami was on pace to score over 43 points per game, the fact that they were online, they were going down the path, they were going down the road, they were starting their journey, they were going in the right direction to be known as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Offenses in NFL history, again, four games, three games, two games, six games, eight games, 10 games, 12 games. We really can't make that assertion yet, but it's nice to talk about. So basically, Miami was coming in with a lot of smoke. Miami was coming in with a lot of shine. Miami was coming in with a lot of swag. Miami was coming in with a lot of accolades. Miami was coming in at the quote-unquote real deal so far early in this season. And again, heightened by the beatdown that they gave the Denver Broncos in almost historic fashion in terms of how many points scored in that game. And they went to Buffalo, and the Buffalo Bills decided that, you know what, time to knock you guys down, just, just, just a couple. Josh Allen, 21 of 25, threw for four touchdowns, rushed for one. Stephon Diggs, six passes, 120 yards, three touchdowns, wearing out the cornerback for Miami. The man who replaced Jalen Ramsey, um, who's out with a season-long injury. Um, what was his name? Kadar, uh, K-A-D-A-R, Kadar Koju, second-year cornerback. Destroyed him, torched him. But we could sit here and talk about how great the Buffalo Bills offense was and how good of a quarterback Josh Allen was on that day. But the defense also. In fact, the defense should have gotten even more shine when you speak about how potent, how dangerous the Miami Dolphins offense was going into this game. The fact that, yeah, Miami might have finished with 393 total yards, but Buffalo held Miami to 3-10, and 10, 3 of 10 on third down conversions, and 0 of 3 on fourth down conversions. So the Bills also forced two turnovers and sacked two with Tunga Bailoa four times. To put that into context, the Dolphins had allowed only one sack in their first three games. So after the first month of the season, not only are the Buffalo Bills the best team in the league, according to Wendell Wallace, and that in 25 cents won't even buy you a pack of gum anymore, but I believe after the month of September, four, first uh, four games into the season, Josh Allen is the leader of the MVPs. 
Yes, more so than again, as I mentioned before, Tunga Vailoa, McCaffrey, Parsons, Mahomes. Before the game, again, Tua was that guy. And he deserved being called the best player in the game coming into week three, completing 73% of the 72 passes for over 1,000 yards, eight touchdowns, and two interceptions. Threw for 466 yards against Justin Herbert. Yes, McCaffrey deserves some shine, becoming the third player in NFL history with 600 more yards from scrimmage and seven touchdowns or more from scrimmage through the team's first four games. He joined Emmett Smith and Jim Brown in that category. Yes, yeah, so all of those, Michael Parsons, Again, I heard the LT word when they were talking about, quote-unquote, describing some of his, quote-unquote, traits. They weren't actually saying that he was Lawrence Taylor, but they were doing the old, I'm not trying to say he's Lawrence Taylor, but boy, I see this, which reminds me of Taylor, blah, 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 the way that he was so dominant. He deserved some accolades. And, of course, Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, I, I, I believe, already has reached um, LeBron James, Michael Jordan's type status to where if you were just basically judging everybody on a not on a curve, that Patrick Mahomes literally could win nine or ten NFL MVPs, just like Jordan back in the day could have won eight or nine MVPs, like Shaq could have won seven or eight MVPs, like LeBron could have won six or seven MVPs, but because we are judging on a curve because LeBron and MJ and Shaq and Kobe and these guys are so great that, oh, my goodness gracious, yeah, okay, Jordan did this, but it was comparable to what he did with that. But take a look in 1992, 1991, 1992 season, what Charles Barkley did. Oh, my goodness gracious. Charles made that jump going from Philly to to Phoenix and had career years and lifted the Phoenix Suns as the most entertaining and dangerous team in the Western Conference and had a career season. Charles Barkley for years before that in Philadelphia, one of the top five or six players in the NBA. So we took that and elevated it up a couple of levels. Again, when he decided to play for the dream team and that offseason got himself in shape to play for the Phoenix Sun to show Philadelphia, a city which he considered racist at the time, that he was going to show them about how great that he was because he never got an opportunity to play with a squad that could beat MJ and Chicago Bulls while he was in Philadelphia and made that very public about how he was tired of playing with the Corn Shackleford's of the world and why they had to have a white player on the team because the city was racist and the team would never um, never uh, cheer for a basketball squad which had 12 brothers on it. So Barkley went to Phoenix and did his thing. And because Jordan just had his regular year, which was above par excellent jordan even though it was better than Barkley's and never, even though Jordan was a better player, and even though everybody with a brain in their head, if they would have said, hey, if you had one player to choose to win a championship, would it have been Barkley or Jordan? Even with Barkley having that career year, everybody would have said Jordan. He made that come to fruition when the Bulls beat the Phoenix Suns in the 1992 NBA championship. But because of the jump that Barkley had and Jordan was still remained at his same level of greatness, the voters swayed to that new story. The voters swayed to that new storyline and gave the MVP to Barkley, just like they did when Carl Malone won the MVP, just like when Steve Nash won the MVP over Shaq and Kobe, just like when Derrick Rose won the MVP over LeBron James, just like when Stephen Curry was unanimous MVP over LeBron James in those years. It's the same thing now with Patrick Mahomes. 
I mean, we're going to really get down to it and say who's the best player if you had the number one pick in the NFL draft in which you could draft any player in the league. Eight, nine, ten GMs or eight, nine, ten people would probably go with Patrick Mahomes over Josh Allen. But because of the start of the season that Josh Allen has had compared to the start of the season that Patrick Mahomes has had in terms of statistics and impact, that people are going to go with the more interesting story. Patrick Mahomes has already won two MVPs. Josh Allen hasn't gotten there yet. So as of right now, as of right now, key phrase right there, as of right now, in the month of early, early October, the MVP is going to sway towards um, Josh Allen. Now, we've seen this plenty of times in the past couple of years. We've seen Dak Prescott jump out to a big lead early on. We've seen Russell Wilson, when he was with Seattle, jump out to an early MVP lead at the beginning part of the season. We've seen Kyler Murray for the Arizona Cardinals do the same thing. When everything is all said and done, they're afterthoughts. Now, I think Josh Allen is too good of a player. The resume is too strong. He's too impactful of a player to fall off the way Dak Prescott fell off with Dallas, the way that Kyler Murray fell off with um, Arizona. But as of right now, Josh Allen, the MVP, more sustainable than the other candidates that I uh, just mentioned. But then again, also look out for Patrick Mahomes as this season rolls on. So right now, Josh Allen is the MVP of the league. The Buffalo Bills are the best team in the NFL. And again, if you want to go ahead and make that decision that the San Francisco 49ers are, remember, take into account the difference as far as the ability, as far as the responsibility of a Josh Allen for Buffalo and a Brock Purdy for the San Francisco 49ers. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So for the first four weeks of the season, the AFC North, when we take a look at some of the storylines, what what exactly has happened to the AFC North? Because it's probably, as of right now, four weeks into the season, the most disappointing division in the NFL. Is it going to remain that way? Is it going to stay that way? I don't know. But as of right now, it's poor. It's underwhelming. It's disappointing. And there's some things that I see that while, again, I'm not going to sit here and say this is an absolute, but these are some things that we should be taking a look at when we speak about the either downward spiral or the recovery to importance and reaching their expectations for some of these teams that have started off very, very slowly. When you take a look at the preseason power rankings, and I took a look at the ESPN.com, and I took a look at NFL.com, you take a look at ESPN, for instance, Way back before the first game of the season, after the preseason games were over and they had their first power rankings, and you take a look at some of the teams that were in the AFC North, Cincinnati was ranked number three. They were power ranked number three. Baltimore was ranked number eight. This is according to ESPN.com, but Cincinnati was ranked number three. Baltimore was ranked number eight. Pittsburgh was ranked number 14 after a pretty strong showing in in the preseason and Cleveland was ranked 18th. And NFL.com preseason, their power ranking, they had Cincinnati number four, Baltimore was ranked number seven, Cleveland was ranked of 13th, and Pittsburgh was ranked 19th. And through the first four weeks of the season, the first month of the season, shall we say, you can put Cincinnati and Pittsburgh right alongside the New England Patriots, 
the Denver Broncos, the Minnesota Vikings, the Chicago Bears, the New York Giants as being, as of right now, when you take a look at the results compared to the expectations, the biggest disappointment so far this season. Now, yes, Pittsburgh is 2-2. Two and two, But when you take a look at all the 2-2 two and two teams in the NFL, Pittsburgh might be the worst when you take a look at what they've been doing. Not just on defense where they can't stop the run, but also on offense. The, the, the embarrassment. I don't know. It's, it's too early yet in the season to say hitting rock bottom. But when you take a look at the expectations of the, of the team, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the team that they were playing, the Houston Texans, and you saw not only did the Steelers lose to Houston, but they were embarrassed 30-6 to and allowed Texans quarterback C.J. Stroud to make them look foolish, to make them look like, make him look like, you know, he's the second coming. It, it, was, it was interesting. And it's, again, we, we speak about the Steelers' defense, T.J. Watt coming back from an injury, the Steelers, this, that, the other on defense, but also their offense. What, what's going on with their offense? They're bottom 10. When you speak about offensive proficiency, they're bottom 10 in the league in yards per game, rushing yards per game, and points per game. What? I thought Kenny Pickett was the bam. But against Houston, he struggled. He was 9 of 14 for 35 yards and an interception in the first half putting the Steelers in a 16 to nothing hole. Then in the third quarter, he was forced out of the game with a knee injury. He's back to practicing. So I believe that uh, last time that we spoke, I'm recording this on a Wednesday afternoon, that Pickett is going to be listed as questionable. But I'm just thinking here, and again, we're four, four, we're four games into the season. But I just want to throw the question out to you so you can start thinking on this. Uh, Steelers fans, start marinating on this, even though, I'm quite sure you guys already have. Again, too early in the season, and really, Kenny Pickett's career is really too early to come up with this answer. But I want you to start thinking about when do we start applying some absolutes to what Kenny Pickett is as a starting quarterback? Because we're already starting to do that with Mac Jones in New England. We're already starting to do that with Justin Fields in Chicago, and we're quicker to do we're quicker to do that with, with draft picks or with quarterbacks who have been drafted in their first round who don't pan out immediately. We're we're quicker to label them bust. We're quicker to give up on them. We're quicker to try to come up with a solution or the problem to say that if this was a correct picker pick or not more quickly than we are quarterbacks who jump off and have a successful career at the beginning of their tenure as quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks in the NFL if they are drafted high. So when we speak about Kenny Pickett and we speak about, okay, man, should the Steelers all of a sudden now start maybe thinking about another direction in the upcoming years or the fifth-year option and all this stuff, with Kenny Pickett, who is entering his second year, when do we start questioning this? Especially when, when you start looking at the offensive woes, how much of this is tied to the regression that Pickett has shown so far this season after coming on strong at the end of his rookie year? How much do we apply to possibly Pickett regressing and that coinciding with the fact that Matt Canada is the offensive coordinator for the Steelers? Because he ended his rookie season, speaking about Kenny Pickett for the Steelers, he ended his rookie season with the promise of being a solid starting QB in the NFL. Now, I'm not going to put him, I was never going to put him. I don't think that he has the ability. I don't think that he has the talent. I don't think that he has the potential to be a quote-unquote 
top tier guy. I don't think that he's ever going to be in the class of a Justin Herbert. I don't think that he's ever going to be in the class of the upper tier quarterbacks of his generation. But this is a situation where you put him in the right situation and you give him a little bit of help, maybe a little bit more than a little bit of help from the offensive standpoint and put a solid and very good defense on the other side of the ball for him. I think that this is a guy who has an opportunity to potentially, when everything clicks and everything fills out and when his physical and mental prime reach its zenith, maybe in the next three or four years, that Kenny Pickett could be that guy that could lead the Super Bowl and lead the Steelers to a Super Bowl championship. But when do we start making that? When do we start trying to divvy up the, okay, Kenny Pickett is not that guy, or Kenny Pickett is not close to being that guy, or is Kenny Pickett's fault more that he's regressing compared to what his offensive coordinator is? I don't know how much an offensive coordinator or a head coach can, can ruin a, a quarterback, especially when you're speaking about the organization that is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, there have been some examples of poor organizations not doing enough to help out his quarterback, and because of that, it fails. See uh, David Carr of the, or see David Carr or uh, Tim Couch or um, Achilles Smith or, or Joey Harrington or maybe some of these other uh, quarterbacks that were drafted high but went to bad organizations or organizations that really didn't know how to put their quarterbacks to put their, their investment, the most important investment that you can have as an NFL organization. I, they didn't know the correct way to put him in the best position to succeed but with the Steelers, that shouldn't be the case. And when you take a look at the pedigree that the Steelers have had, mainly Ben Roethlisberger, that shouldn't be the case. But then again, we have to take a look at Matt Canada, the offensive coordinator. We have to take a look at some of the stale, out-of-date, repetitious, boring um, um, style of play calling in offense, which he's been criticized for and how much of that is a situation where we just get ourselves another offensive coordinator who's a little bit more out of the box or a little bit more, um, you know, inventive or something like that? How much of that impact could lead to Kenny Pickett's elevation to the expectations that the Steelers had for him when he was drafted number one? And, of course, there's other things, of course. The offensive line for Pittsburgh is, is putrid. Um, there's really not a stud wide receiver or tight end available for him. Nashi Harris in the running game has been inconsistent. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's other things going on to that. So, you know, for, for instance, with Pickett, after turning the ball over just four times in the final nine games of his rookie season, this season, Pickett has had four turnovers over the first four games of this campaign. Despite hitting on long touchdown passes, for instance, against uh, Houston to George Pickens and Calvin Austin, Pickett was averaging just six and a half yards per attempt before his injury. And when you go by the NFL Next Generation model, uh, Next Generation Stats model, Pickett has generated 33.1 per percentage success rate on his drop pack drop back passes this season. Now, what exactly does that mean? Measures uh, when we're speaking about 33% success rate on his drop back this season. What exactly does that mean? How did you define that? What that means is that it measures how often the quarterback keeps his offense on schedule to score points. So right now, Pickett is at 33%. Only Zach Wilson has been worse. And right now, before that game against Kansas City, Zach Wilson was the barometer 
to where it's like, well, if you're doing worse than Zach Wilson in any particular category, uh, you are failing. So Zach Wilson was that barometer. Zach Wilson was that guy. Zach Wilson was that template in terms of how do we how do we measure the validity or how do we measure someone's uh, progress or success? Because if it's worse than Zach Wilson, that means that we are in trouble, that we're in much, much, much trouble. Now, again, I mentioned the fact how much of this is tied to the fact that Matt Canada is the offensive coordinator. Well, after the game against Houston, Tomlin was talking about, hey, man, we need to make some changes. And upon reviewing the game film on Sunday, Tomlin said that the Texans were more physical and played harder than the Steelers. So he's talking about, hey, you know what? From now on, we're going to be going to more padded practices in an effort to resolve the issue of teams being more physically, uh, being more mentally and physically prepared uh, than we are. But the most important thing, because I know Steelers fans are talking about fire the coordinator, fire the coordinator, fire Canada, fire Canada. Tomlin made changes to the depth chart, but not any changes or not any significant changes to any of the coaching uh, position coaches, offensive coordinator, quarterback coach, anything like that. So moving forward, we will see. But as of right now, Pittsburgh just not getting it done. And right now, very, very disappointing. What exactly is going on, though, with the Cincinnati Bengals, Bungles, whatever you want to call them? They're one and three. They lost to Cincinnati. Excuse me. They lost to Tennessee, 27 to three. Is it time to start doubting a turnaround from Cincinnati this season? That's going to be the question. I know, I, I know, I know, I know you're going to throw it in my face. I know. Come on, Wendell. You just mentioned before. What was that? Have you, what have you been telling us since August, right? What have you been telling us, Wendell? R-E-L-A-X. When it comes to the first four, six, even eight weeks of the season. Don't P-A-N-I-C, right? Haven't that you been telling us? So why in the world are you going to throw this out there to us in terms of the Bengals? They're one and three. Yeah, they lost to Cincinnati. Yeah, their offense looked putrid. Yeah, Joe Burrow doesn't look uh, healthy. Yeah, the defense has been terrible. But after we're, we're going to go against your philosophy. We're going to go against your teachings. We're going to go against your thoughts and opinions when it comes to starting the beginning of the season and start talking about is it time for the Cincinnati Bengals after four games to go ahead and start tanking? Tanking for what? <laughs> Tanking to get a quarterback? <laughs> That's not the case. That's not going to be the case. Tanking to get a position to where teams that need a quarterback can offer them a multitude of picks to improve their squad that way? Is that what we're talking about? Four games into a 17-game season when you told us to R-E-L-A-X and E-N-E-N-J-O-Y, the S-E-A-S-O-N so far? Come on now. Come on now. Look, Cincinnati has scored three offensive touchdowns in four weeks. <sighs> Joe Burrow is playing like he had to recover from that uh, preseason calf injury, which he, uh, which he uh, sustained in practice. A non-hit. He didn't get hit or either. He just went out to a play and just said, calf hurting. So, look, he's the first quarterback in NFL history to attempt at least 150 passes in his team's first four games of the season, an average less than five yards per attempt on those passes. That's not Joe Burrows. Against Tennessee, he was 20 of 30, 165 yards and zero touchdowns. That ain't Joe Burrow. He was sacked three times for a loss of 26 yards. That kind of is Joe Burrow when you speak about that offensive line. But through four games this season, 
Burrow, he's passed for 728 yards with only two touchdowns against two interceptions. That's not Joe Burrow. He has a 57 percentage completion rate and is, and is averaging less than five yards per pass attempt. That's not Joe Burrow. Now against Tennessee, T. T Higgins injured his ribs. So we don't know what his status is moving forward. Jamar Chase is up there in the locker room after the game's talking about, fuck it, man, I'm always open. I don't give a damn if you put the whole stadium on my black ass. I can still catch the football. So right now the offense is in trouble. The offensive line isn't doing anything. The running game has not sufficiently made up for the lack of production from the quarterback position in the, in the passing game. But look, that's kind of taken some of the spotlight off of how bad Cincinnati's defense had been. It's been terrible. The rushing defense is the worst it's been in years. The Bengals have allowed the second most rushing touchdown yardage. I'm sorry, Jimmy. They've allowed the second most rushing yardage in the NFL this season with 280. They're averaging teams are averaging five yards per per carry, which matches the highest total in the past five years for a Bengals defense. And Cincinnati had 12, 12 missed tackles against the Titans this past Sunday. Now, the run defense, again, has given up 170-plus yards in three of the last four games this season and ranks 31st in rushing yards allowed per game and 30th in yards per carry allowed. Yikes. So, look, man, I don't, I don't know because when we speak about the turnaround, it's going to be all contingent on the health of Joe Burrow. But what are we talking about here if Joe Burrow does not recover in a sufficient amount of time for the Burrows to make for the Bengals to make anything of this season? So what are we going to do now? So where are we going to do now? And and when, especially after signing the richest contract in NFL history before Joe uh, before um, Patrick Mahomes surpassed him with an extension, what what do we do about the long term of Joe Burrow in terms of his health is concerned? A calf injury, I don't know if this is going to be exacerbated even more to have long-term effects if you continue to play him. But then again, if he's not if he's not healthy and he really can't contribute like Joe Burrow, like you need Joe Burrow to contribute, and he has a large responsibility in terms of the efficiency, the efficiency of this offense, so what are we going to do? Where are we going to do? What's the point? Now, again, Joe Burrow is your future. Joe Burrow is your franchise. Joe Burrow is that QB. Joe Burrow is going to be that guy that hopefully you're going to have on your squad 10, 12, 15 years doing the thing leading Cincinnati to multiple championship opportunities. But how much of that is just, you know, hindered on, hey, man, we got to get this guy. We got to get this guy fully healed. What's going to be what's going to be the consequence if we say, look, Joe, we need you at Hell, at least 70%. Nobody in the NFL is at 100% during the season. I think when preseason starts, that's when you start chipping away at a player's 100% health. But if Joe Burrow can make it to, I don't know, let's say week seven, week eight, in terms of, look, we're going to sit you out for a couple of uh, weeks before so you can heal a little bit better, get that calf to at least 70, 75, 80%. And at the end of eight weeks or nine weeks, if we're sitting three and six, if we're sitting four and five somewhere, I mean, with you coming back, we can get the defense straightened out. And maybe there's a mulcrum of, 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 of optimism that we can make a run. 
because when you take a look at that division, the AFC North, with the exception of Baltimore, there's still a chance. I don't know what to do with the Cincinnati in that regard, but right now they are they are very, very disappointing. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, um, I know that uh we saw Sunday night's game. I was watching I was watching as much as I could. Um, due to the other storyline that I'm not going to mention, the woman's name that I'm not going to mention, um, the whole relationship with the tight end and that woman I'm not going to mention, not because I hate them or not because of anything like that, just because I just, I'm just sick and tired of it. You know, before I really get into the nuts and bolts of it, you know, when you speak about how do you have or how do you construct a situation where you hate a team or you hate a player, more specifically, hating a player, when you really don't know them, right? I mean, I'll give you an example for me. There, there was a time for years and years and years, I couldn't stand Tim Tebow. I hated Tim Tebow. Now, that's an irrational thought because I'd never met Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is a, is a wonderful human being by all accounts. Um, but I just didn't like Tim Tebow. I couldn't stand Tim Tebow. When Tim Tebow came, into my, came on my TV screen, I just couldn't stand it. I remember when the... Broncos played the Chicago Bears. And I forgot who the running back, Marion Barber, I believe it was for the it was for the Bears. The Bears were ahead, trying to run out the clock, and this clown, Marion Barber, decides to run out of bounds instead of staying inbounds, which gave the Broncos another opportunity to get the ball back. They went down and Matt Elam kicked like a 57, 58-yard field goal to put the game in overtime or to win the game. Or, or some or some nonsense like that. It was years ago. But I remember I remember I was at my place here in North Las Vegas and I was actually screaming, yelling, yelling at the television at Marion Barber, calling him all kind of names, cursing him up, cursing him up and down, left and right, backwards and forwards, east and west, north and south. From from Singapore to Seattle, I mean, I was just you fucking what the fuck are you doing? You goddamn blah blah blah. All because it was like my 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 goodness gracious, please don't give this ball back to fucking Tim Tebow. Have him do something, and I have to go through another week of listening to these fucking assholes sit there and talk about Tim fucking Tebow. No, no, no. It was irrational. It was immature. It was stupid of me to have that reaction. Had no, I mean, back Florida, Tim Tebow, man, if I had a daughter, I would love to see her date Tim Tebow. And all of this, Tim Tebow, the hate for Tim Tebow for me was created by the media. There was really nothing that Tim Tebow did to have me hate him. What made me irrationally unchristian-like hate him was having to listen to those in the media go on and on and on and have these fools from the evangelical come in and go on and on and on and on about Timbo, uh, Tim Tebow. It was the same thing with Brett Favre when he came back uh, the second time with Minnesota and when he, uh, his last uh, season with the Green Bay Packers before he retired and he came back and then he retired and he came back. It's not so much the human being. It's kind of hard for somebody with a brain in their head, an irrational thought to to hate somebody they have never met, 
to have to to hate somebody they don't know and really haven't given you any reason because you know I've never met Hitler either, but I'm quite sure that he was a pretty bad motherfucker and he was a pretty horrible human being. Right? Ted Bundy never met; he was evil. John Wayne Gacy never met; he was a piece of shit. Gary Ridgway, Osama bin Laden, um, Matt Gates, uh, the Satan who's running for president, um, and others never met them. But I'm pretty sure I can say Clarence Thomas, Uncle Clarence, that they're scumbags, that they're lowlifes, that they're fucking assholes. I can I can pretty much kind of guarantee that without having to meet them. But what I'm saying is the fact there was nothing that any of these people that I wound up hating in the sports world, mainly they had they really didn't do anything except that the media shoved them down my throat. All of this is to get back to look, man, I'm not gonna fall for that trap. I'm not going to fall for that trick. I'm not going to be swerved. I'm not going to be, be dis, I'm not going to be manipulated into having me hate this woman or her boyfriend or the team that her boyfriend plays on. I'm not going to do that. But I can see if you got back to me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I would hate with the utmost passion the Kansas City football team, uh Kelsey and and his girlfriend. I would. I would. And I don't know any of these people. I think this girl is uh, this, this, this artist that uh, Travis Kelsey is dating. It's, it's wonderful and she's talented and she's doing a lot and she's a good humanitarian and all these things. There's, there's no reason for me to hate this woman. I don't know this woman. I don't know this guy. I don't know it. So, I, I, so I, I'm, I'm older. I'm wiser. I'm not going to fall for that. But I'm definitely not going to contribute to the bullshit that has been going on as I'm trying to watch the Sunday night football game and they're showing cutaway shots of her. No, I'm not going to contribute to that bullshit. I'm not going to contribute to that nonsense. I'm not going to say anything immature. I'm not going to say anything irrational. I'm not going to say anything stupid like all of her fans. What you need to do, if you, if you really want to listen to someone who can sing, if you really want to go gaga over somebody, if you really want to know what real singing is all about, if you really want to know what real talent is all about, if you really want to get excited about someone with some talent that's legendary and that can sing and that will go down for centuries and eons and generations of of people that will always know that this person is the greatest, this person is this, that, and the other, go listen to some Aretha Franklin. Go listen to some Anita Baker. Go listen to some Diana Ross. Go listen to some Mary J. Blige. Go, miss, go listen to them folks. Go listen to some Dusty Springfield. Go listen to them folks. If you want to have, oh my goodness, she's so great, this, that, and the other. Notice I didn't mention anything about Whitney Houston, even though you can do so. Notice I didn't mention anything about Janet Jackson. But you want to listen to some real music. If you want to listen to a real female artist, get on down. Legendary, greatest, awesome, losing your mindish. Go pick up Rapture by Anita Baker. Go listen to any of Nita Baker's music from 1987 to 1992 and beyond. Go listen to Aretha Franklin any anytime. Go listen to Real Love by Mary J. Blige and some of her and some of her work. Listen to a little bit of Dusty Springfield. That's what I'm talking about. All this other nonsense about this woman. See, if I were irrational, if I was immature, if I was a pea brain, if I was any of these other negative connotations, I would go on and go off and say all those type of things. But I'm not. I'm not going to apply my thoughts and my feelings and my factual uh, points that I'm making to any of the quote-unquote Swifties 
who are drinking the, who instead of eating filet mignon, are still eating feces. That's all, that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Back to the game itself. <laughs> hey, let me tell you something. If that woman can influence, hey, all of you quote-unquote Swifties who love and adore her, listen to what she's saying when she's talking about this upcoming um, um, election. You know, make, make, make Taylor Swift happy by doing the right thing and seeing what we can do to keep Satan and his, and his acolytes out of the White House. For your sake. Hmm? So if you want to do anything, look, if you if you people can do that, hell, I'll even come up here and start singing one of her songs. So, um, yeah, there we go. But, uh, yeah, <clears throat> the uh, whole deal with um, the performance that Zach Wilson had against the Kansas City football team on Sunday night. What do you make of that? Um, because now I tell you, man, from one end of the spectrum to the other, right? After week three, Joe Namath was up there killing the guy, and Rodney Harrison, even after the uh, game, was up there talking about how bad of he, how bad of a fo- football player he is. And there was dissension within the locker room because Robert Sala, after the week three loss to New England, was sitting up there saying, talking about, I still believe in Zach Wilson, and we're still going to give him a chance. And there were reports coming out of New York that the – Players in that locker room didn't like that because they don't believe that Zach Wilson can help them in any way, shape, or form. So in one performance against Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes, where he went 28-39 to for 245 yards and two touchdowns, now all of a sudden bringing the team back from being down 17 nothing, right? Because after um, the tight end for Kansas City scored to make a 17 nothing, you were thinking, right? Like, oh, Lord, here we go again. Here we go again. And it was getting close to putting the spotlight back on the other nonsense, the other bullshit, the other ridiculous storyline that no football fan or, or or anybody else wanted to hear, right? And we would have to have 15,000 fucking shots of her in the press box, right? So I was sitting there talking about, I'm about ready to turn this goddamn television off. But luckily, Zach Wilson was like, hold on for a second, hold on. And he played well. He probably had his best game of his career. So now, again, from one end of the spectrum to the other, he goes from being an absolute bum and this, that, and the other to the fact that, hey, lay off Zach Wilson. He's young. He can throw the football. I mean, Chris Collinsworth, I don't know. Is he trying to audition to be his agent watching that game as he was just trying his best to sit there and try to convince us that, hey, Zach Wilson can do this. And, hey, Zach Wilson, believe in Zach Wilson. Put your stock into Zach Wilson. Look, against Kansas City, he carried the offense. He stressed the field with accurate intermediate strikes, connected with 10 different receivers. He actually looked like a starting quarterback in the NFL. But my question is, what does that mean when you have the guy that was supposed to be leading you to the promised land, Aaron Rodgers, going on the Pat McAfee show and talking about, hey, you know what, I want to do my best to uh, try to come back this season. And what does it mean long term? For And when I say long-term, I'm talking about for the next, say, two to three years for the plan for the New York Jets. I mean, are we still going to be in wanting to have Aaron Rodgers as the quarterback if Zach Wilson can perform to the level that he did against Kansas City on a consistent basis? Zach Wilson is going to play another 13 games, right? The Jets right now are 1-3, and three, but there's still 13 games left in the season. Let's say, for instance, that... 
for the final 13 games, right, Jet fans, hear me out. For the final 13 games, Zach Wilson has eight games in which he gave that type of performance against Kansas City. All right, now you can nitpick and talk about he didn't start the game well and he um, fumbled the last opportunity for Kansas for uh, for New York to um, to do some things to tie the game to win the game that that the other. Um, if you'd say that, then you also have to kind of criticize the fact that the referees near the end where they missed a holding call on Mahomes fourth what fourth and twenty two where he scrambled uh, that far where where basically the offensive lineman the left tackle for the um, football team from Kansas City basically put him in a bear hug and body slammed him and then the call on Sauce Gardner, which I thought was uh, was was poor, in which in that situation Mahomes threw another interception that was called back. But, um, you know, with the totality of the game, that fumble really didn't cost the New York Jets to uh, win that football game. But let's just say that for the final eight games or for 13 games, eight of those 13 games left of the season that Zach Wilson plays at that level, he has – two duds, and then three games in which he's, eh, you know, not great, not horrible, but he's just, he's just there. What, what will that mean for the outlook next season when Aaron Rodgers come, does come back? And what happens if in the offseason that Aaron Rodgers is cleared to play and this, that, and the other? Despite the fact that Zach Wilson had eight really good games or eight games comparable to the one that he had against Kansas City on Sunday that you're going to go back to being second string? I mean, how do we know, how much do we know of Aaron Rodgers when he comes back? If Zach Wilson is continuing to ascend, even if he's not going to be at the level level of Aaron Rodgers, is that going to be a situation where you're going to stunt the growth by putting Zach Wilson back at the backup quarterback and continuing to have Aaron Rodgers? Aaron Rodgers is contractually obligated to be with the team through not only this season, but next season. So regardless, you're going to have him on the squad for 2024. So, you know, despite, is there anything that Zach Wilson can do to usurp the, um, to usurp the, the, the uh, decision to have Aaron Rodgers be the starting quarterback in 2024 to um, change the opinion now, of course, there's going to be OTAs, there's going to be training camps, this, that, and the other, but um, I don't know with all the hoopla surrounding Aaron Rodgers at all. I, he really didn't give you enough to say yay or nay either way in terms of who's going to be the starting quarterback. But with the cachet, with all the expectations, Aaron Rodgers, I guess, is going to get first shot if he's medically cleared to play close to 100% after Achilles surgery and recovery to come back. So does it really matter what Zach Wilson does for the rest of the season, even if he can get the Jets into the playoffs, which means that he would have to go toe-to-toe not only with the Patrick Mahomes of the world, but also the Josh Allens not uh, for another time go up against Tua in that Miami Dolphins offense, not once but twice when you're speaking about being in a in a conference that has Justin Herbert, that had Lamar Jackson, that has these other quarterbacks, if he can get the Jets to rally from a one and three start to get them in the playoffs, whether it be nine and eight, whether it be ten and seven, whether it be eleven and six, is that going to hold any sway? Is that going to hold anything in terms of Aaron Rodgers comes back and says, "Guess what? I'm ready." Because it really doesn't matter. Zach Wilson could win the MVP of the league after, uh, you know, after week four. 
And Aaron Rodgers is going to be like, I don't give a fuck. I'm, I'm, I came here to win a championship with my boys. You guys did everything in the world to, to, to get me. Now give me the opportunity. So this is not going to be a situation where I don't care how well well Zach Wilson plays. Aaron Rodgers is not going to acquiesce that position of starting quarterback for next season. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what will happen. So the NFL moving on to week five, we have the game of the we have the game of the year so far with Dallas and San Francisco. Um, Dallas looking good against New England. I, I, you know what? I'm going to give it a little bit more time before we start talking about does New, New England need to go in a different direction at quarterback and exactly what does it mean for 71-year-old Bill Belichick's future moving forward with the New England Patriots. That question is really being brought up. Both those questions are really being brought up with the assumption that New England is not going to do well this season. That somewhere, somehow, that New England, what happens if they finish 5-12? and 12? What happens if they finish 6-11? and 11? I think those are the discussions that are going to be based on that type of record uh, concerning the quarterback and the coach, who I believe is, what, about 28, 29 games away from Don Shula being the all-time winningest head football coach in the NFL. So those are the things with New England, some others, I will get to later on in the later on in the season with my podcast. Um, the bookie break coming up. Then we're going to talk about a little college football. I'm going to go over the top 15 teams in the country. I'm going to talk about Notre Dame saving their season. And also the biggest fraud in terms of the top 10. Which team in the top 10 is the biggest fraud? Is it Georgia? Is it Ohio State? Is it Oregon? USC, Notre Dame, Alabama, which one of the teams, I believe, is the biggest fraud when you take a look at the expectations and what they can deliver to win themselves a championship? My name is Wendell Wallace, and I can't turn you loose because if I do, I'm going to lose my mind. I can't never turn you loose because if I do, I'm going to lose my mind. I can't turn you loose to nobody because I love you, baby. Yes, I do. Woo, baby, hip shaking mama, I told you, I'm in love with only you. You know what? Time for me to listen and get on down to the greatest of them all. The absolute greatest of them all. You hear me, Swifties? The greatest of them all. The one and only, the legend, the American icon, the revolutionary, the master of soul, the king of soul. No, not James Brown. The one and only, Otis Redding, here on Wendell's World and Sports. The greatest of them all. The absolute, positively greatest of them all. The legendary Otis Redding. In fact, for my next boogie break, I want to turn you loose again. 
I'm not going to have Otis sing it to you, but I'm going to have Tina Turner sing that song. I'm going to have Tina Turner turn you loose. And then to end my song, to end my show, you know who I want to have turn it loose? You know what female I'm going to have to turn it loose? Because if you do, you're going to lose your mind. I'm going to have the queen of soul. I'm going to have the queen of music. I'm going to have one of the greatest artists of all time, Aretha Franklin. And for those who are listening to this podcast, and for those who might be worried that you might have your daughter be too inundated with the Swifties, and all of a sudden, that's what they're going to know as good music. Fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandfathers, cousins, sisters, brothers, best friends, the creep down the street. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to YouTube and I want you to find these songs and I want you to go into your daughter's room. I want you to go into your sister's room. I want you to go into your goddaughter's room. I want you to go into your grand into your granddaughter's room. And I want you to say, hold on for a second. Let me let me tell you, let me show you, let me play you what some real music is all about. And then let them listen to a little Aretha. Let them listen to a little I Can't Turn You Loose by Tina. And then when they look at you with that inquisitive but confused look on their face, that's when you shake your head and you say, you're not my daughter anymore. Just joking. Wendell's world. I'm joking about that comment. I'm not joking about every female, every person, every human being, especially of the younger generation, should know the music of the legends that I play on my program. Goddamn right on that one. Wendell's world of sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay. Let's go ahead and let's talk about the top 15 squads in the country, shall we? Because it's an interesting pack. The AP came out with its latest top 15. Georgia's number one, Michigan's number two, Texas number three, Ohio State number four, Florida State number five. Florida State and Ohio were idle uh, this past week. Georgia coming back to defeat Auburn, Michigan doing what they had to do in their victory against Nebraska. Uh, Texas looking impressive. Penn State, number six. Washington kind of malaise their way through to a 31-24 victory over Arizona. Um, Oregon, number eight. They beat uh, Stanford. I don't know. Unfortunately, we were not uh, privy to Dan Lanning's pregame speech to the the squad before they went out to uh, face Stanford, kind of thinking what it would be. Let me tell you something, men. Stop right now. That team over there, they're playing for degrees. We're playing for victories, right? They're more interested in degrees. We're more interested in victories. There's no Hollywood ending, men. Now, some of you guys, when your career is over, then that team that you're playing on the other side of the field, You might have to go to them because they'll be the ones who are going to be giving you a job. Because when you graduate from Stanford and you get that degree, Lord have mercy, you are set up because of the educational educational prowess that that university has. But right now, today, men, we're going to take those degrees that they're going to have. We're going to treat them as footballs and we're going to shove them right up their asses. The Hollywood story ends today, man. I don't know if he said that or not, but it would be interesting. If he's going to be talking about they play for clicks and we play for victories, what does Stanford play for? I'm saying it plays four degrees. So they're number eight. USC is number nine. I'll get to USC in a second. Notre Dame, number 10. 
I'll get to Notre Dame in a second. Alabama, number 11. Boy, you know what? Weren't we putting on? I wasn't. No, 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 no. Hold on for a second. I wasn't putting dirt on Alabama when I was saying that the Nick Saban dynasty is over. I, I didn't say that in terms of all of a sudden they're going to turn into Mississippi State, the team that they pummeled the other night. I just said that their dominance or winning championships or being the top dog is over. But you guess, but but guess what? In a down year for the SEC, especially the SEC West, after you saw LSU give up 15,000 yards against Mississippi, and when you take a look at the underwhelming performance of Arkansas, Arkansas and others in that division in the SEC West, is the best team in that conference as far as the West division is concerned? Is this still going to be Alabama without any top-tier prospects on the offensive side of the ball? Because those guys can play some defense now. Every once in a while, they'll give up some big yardage plays, big chunkage of plays, but for the most part, their defense is solid. And Melrose is slowly but surely starting to feel more comfortable in his responsibilities of what he needs to do with starting quarterback. The running game is starting to gain some momentum. They're not going to be the team of the past Nick Saban's where they would have that first-round quarterback. Mac Jones is not walking through that door, and if he is, he'll probably be throwing cross-the-field interceptions and, 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 and playing dirty. Bryce Young is not going to come walking back through that door. So this season, you're going to have to live with um, Milrow as your quarterback until this kid from uh, California comes in. Jared Salen or something like that. Ty Simpson, another five-star recruit. I don't know. This might be his last year in Alabama. And, and Ty Buckner is a guy that we've shown that, that was showing that he was not able to um, handle the responsibility. So Jalen Milrose is going to be Milrose going to be your guy. So is he? You have enough comfortable have enough confidence in him to um, do the thing. So Alabama's number 11. Oklahoma is at number 12. They're going to be playing Texas on Saturday. Washington State, number 13. North Carolina, number 14. Oregon State, number 15. The team that I was talking about in terms of which is the biggest fraud um, in the top 10. And my two, many people right now are saying it's Georgia. Because Georgia escaped once again to their, their tough, the toughest Teams that Georgia has played, they—I don't know. Many people are saying they've just kind of been lackadaisical. They've been playing with a certain type of arrogance, this, that, and the other. We, we've seen that from teams that had expectations of being all-time greats, or teams that had expectations of going down in terms of doing something magical, doing something historical. As we know right now, Georgia is in the midst of trying to three-peat, something that hasn't been done in almost 80 years or so. Since the 1930 Minnesota Golden Gophers, no, P.J. Fleck was not rowing that boat at that time. But that's what the goal is for Georgia. And after the first two championships, consecutive championships the past two years, people were thinking about, well, this is just going to be the same thing, especially when you take a look at the schedule that Georgia has. I don't really see any team this is going into the season. I don't see any type of team that's going to really give Georgia any trouble. But now you see that they were lackadaisical against Tennessee Martin. You saw that they had to uh, come from behind to beat um, South Carolina and such. They, they haven't been they they haven't been dominant. We haven't seen that destructive type of performance that they gave, especially on defense, for the past two seasons. 
So many people can say, when you speak about disappointments, when you speak about underwhelming, when you speak about maybe what's going on here, that the number one ranked team in the country, which is losing steam on the lead that it had when the season first opened in terms of the ranking is concerned, many people point to Georgia to say the biggest fraud in the top 10 or top 15. I'm going to say it's USC. Don't talk to me about USC winning a championship. Do not talk to me about USC winning a championship. Now, I know my man Eric G, who does a show with uh, Coach Jones and does a show from uh, 10 to 11 on the uh, on, on Tulsa's 97.1, um, the sports animal, and then does three hours with Coach Jones. I know that, uh, you know, he's not the biggest Lincoln Riley fan. In fact, uh, you can probably say that um, Eric hates the guy. So, me basically agreeing with him, it's not going to have him dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas or dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie, but it's going to bring a smile to his face to know that, Eric, yes, I also concur with you, the fact that, hey, man, you, you can't... USC beat Colorado 48-41. to 41. Colorado is no good. Okay, let, let, let's be real. Sorry, black community. Don't mean to be getting y'all in the tither, but, but Colorado ain't no good. I don't give a damn how many rappers, I don't give a damn how many ex- Football players, I don't give a damn how many celebrities from Black from uh, Black America come down on their sidelines. I don't care how many black folks from the community jump on the bandwagon who don't know anything about football and start talking about how great Deion Sanders and Colorado football is. And if you accuse them of not being great, that somehow you're either racist or an Uncle Tom, I ain't going down there. I'm talking facts. I'm talking knowledge. I'm talking um, what I know, which is Colorado is not as good as people perceive it to be. In fact, Colorado is not a good football team, period. If Deion Sanders, who I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for, and I believe will eventually get that program to where it is going to become a top 15, top pro, top 10 program year in and year out. So that's my expectations in the next, I don't know, three to four years for Coach Prime if he continues to uh, coach at the same intensity, at the same level, with the same dedication and the same passion. He's going to be getting five-star recruits to go to Boulder. He has a program already in place which is based on discipline, which is based on very good coaching. So Dion, in terms of being a very good college football coach through Jackson State and what he's doing with Colorado, has proven that he can be that guy to take that program and eventually get to a point where they can be one of the head honchos of the big 12 conference when Colorado joins that conference next year. But we're speaking about this year. We're speaking about this year. And this year, Colorado isn't any good. Okay? And for USC, who was up 34 to 7 and a half, then was up 41 to 14 midway through the third quarter, to basically take the pedal off the metal, lose focus, get bored, whatever you want to say to eventually have Colorado score 27 straight points and then make it a one-score game to a team like Colorado, who, again, I'm sorry, black folks, close your, close your ears, ain't no good this season. Hey, man, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. And, again, you can talk about, well, big deal. They were up 42-14 or 41-14. What's the big deal? They won the game, blah, blah, blah. Man, if you want to... If you want to be a team that's going to vie for a national championship and get into the playoffs, all of these things count. All of these things count. If everything goes to form and you're on the outside looking in, say, for instance, at the end of the season, near the end of the season, when they start having the top four teams in, the, in college football, 
the top four teams make it to the playoffs, USC is number five or number six or number seven. These games against Colorado are going to come into play. And yes, you can say, yeah, they won, but guess what? 41 points given up to that squad? 193 yards rushing to that squad? Colorado couldn't run the football against Colorado State. And you want to be a championship squad and you allow almost 200 yards per carry and almost five yards per carry against a bad team in Colorado with a bad offensive line and a bad running game? And allow them to score 27 points after Oregon boat raced, uh, boat raced them and held them to under, to uh, held them to six points? No, nah, man, USC, don't, don't talk to me about winning national championships. And look, you have the best you have the best uh, football player, maybe along with Brock Bowers and Marvin Harrison Jr. and Caleb Williams. Six touchdown passes. That was great, but it was just so underwhelming. I don't know. I was just watching this game, and it was like uh, the, the game the week before where Colorado played against Oregon. There was some animus. There was some, like, personal, I want to whoop your ass. There was some Dan Lanning and, and his squad talking about, look, man, I want to make a statement, and I want to embarrass the squad. I want to let the squad know. Basically, I want this squad to sit down and shut up. Basically, I want this squad to recognize, right? So we want to make a statement, right? That was the, that was the attitude. That was the vibe that you got while you were watching that game, even with which started off, of course, with the pregame speech uh, from the coach. But it was a situation where it was like Oregon really took that personally. I don't think USC took this game personally. They were just like, we're better than them. We're going to go ahead and do our thing, and we're going to win the football game. For them, playing Colorado was no different than playing San Jose State or playing Stanford. And I was looking for a situation where USC saw the game before and said, oh, yeah, you think you beat Colorado badly? Guess what? I, I, I was hoping, and I was thinking, and I was assuming that USC was going to send a message to Oregon. Because if you're going to be playing for a national championship, you're going to have to beat Oregon. The, the road for USC to go to championshipville is going to stop in Eugene, or they're going to be playing Eugene. So any edge, any message that you can send, hey, do it at Colorado's expense. Because again, while Oregon had animus toward USC, excuse me, toward um, toward Colorado for all of the chatter and all of the bling and all of the, hey, you guys might be ranked number 10, but how great is Colorado and Pro Coach Prime? Man, fuck you with that bullshit, man. Let me show you what we're all about. I also thought that maybe it was a situation where Oregon was sending a message to USC with that beatdown. And then I thought USC would take that and say, oh, okay, you think you hot stuff because you beat a really bad football team, which has a flamboyant coach and a really good quarterback? Let me see. Let me let me show you what we're going to do. Let me let me let me introduce you to our quarterback, who just so happens to be the best player in football in the reigning Heisman Trophy. Let me let me show you what we can do. And USC not only didn't show that, it like they came out the losers, even though they won. Because what was the storyline? What was the talking points? What was the main point of that game between USC and Colorado? Oh my goodness, Colorado 
Man, they came back. They didn't quit. All this, that, and the other. And the polls showed, the polls reflected when USC was leapfrogged by Oregon the week before USC was number eight and Oregon was number nine. Now, Oregon is number eight and USC is number nine. So again, with the with the um, with the defense that they have, forget it. They're the biggest frauds in the top in the top ten. But with Georgia, it's just a situation where the expectation Georgia now is more in rebuild than they are in root in reload. And this is what I mean by that. The last couple of years, or they won that national championship, Georgia came back was just as dominant, especially on defense. Remember last year for the first half of the season, people were speaking about, pundits were speaking about, historians were speaking about those who follow the game, know the game, educated on the game, brilliant about the game, talking about the game, writing about the game, speaking about the game of college football. They were sitting up there talking about Georgia. This might be the best defense in college football history before they kind of tailed off a little bit. That was the talking point last year with Georgia going for their second consecutive championship. So I, I think what happened was because Georgia has had really good recruiting classes and the evidence that was shown after winning that first championship that they got even better in terms of defense and some other things on the uh, for the second run, that it was just a fait accompli that Georgia was going to come back and reload. They lost some players to the NFL. That's okay because they have players that were playing behind them that are going to be NFL first-round draft picks this season. So there's going to be another Jalen Carter. Jalen Carter was one of the most talented, dominant forces in college football last uh, season. He go to the NFL, gets drafted by Philadelphia. Don't worry. We have someone who's a five-star recruit who's in that same clone, who's in that same mold, who's in that same build that will just come in and just pick up where he left off. And I think that's where we kind of got the notion. That's where we got the assumption. That's where we got the thought process of what it was with Georgia's, um, Georgia's football program. Now, when we hold those expectations and we see Georgia not being a dominant, it's all of a sudden now the talking points, the discussion points become, well, maybe they're man, what's going on here? They're not they're not trying hard enough. They're not caring. They're sleepwalking. Well, maybe it's the fact that, well, maybe Georgia just isn't as good as people think that they are. And guess what? They've still won all their games. They're still gonna be number one in the country. All they need to do is continue to win these football games, and they'll be right there to defend their championship. And oh, guess what? There really isn't another dominant football team out there. There's not a football team, whether it be Michigan or Florida State or Texas or Oregon or Penn State or Ohio State. There's there's nobody waiting in the wings that have you licking your chops in terms of being, well, this team is going to be the, uh, you know, is going to be the victor when they play Georgia. Or this is going to be, this, this is the juggernaut. This is going to be King Kong. This is going to be, uh, you know, the next dynasty in waiting. There is no Clemson to Alabama in terms of rivalries. There, there, there's none of that this year in college football. Everybody is kind of coming back down to earth. I don't know if because of NIL. I don't know if because, or I'm sorry, I don't know how much of an impact the NIL uh, or the transfer portal has in that regard. 
to where there's not a dominant team. I just don't, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, the expectations or the realistic expectations that every single year you have to have a, a, a team that was as dominant or uh, talented as a Georgia team from a couple of years ago or an Alabama team from a few years after that or a Clemson team uh, during that span. So I don't know what the, I don't, I don't know if this is a one year blip. I don't know if it's just because of the recruits or the last couple of recruiting classes weren't as dominant as they were before, which produced some of these uh, dominant teams in college football. I don't know any of that stuff. There's really not enough data to just point to one single fact, i.e. transfer portal or NIL. A little bit more data needed before we can say that that has been the biggest impact on the mediocrity of college football. But as of right now, I'm very interested. Kentucky has a real shot to beat Georgia. And if they do beat Georgia, I believe it's not going to be because Georgia was sleepwalking or Georgia didn't take them seriously or Georgia this, that, and the other. It's going to be because Georgia, what we think, who we thought they were, ain't who they thought they were. And guess what? We have underestimated an undefeated Kentucky program who put the beat down on Florida. Poor Billy Gillespie. So there you go. There's some interesting games coming up this weekend. Um, we've got, well, I, well, yeah, Notre Dame. Do I want to discuss Notre Dame? Comeback victory over Duke? Eh, not really. I'm just glad that Notre Dame had 10 people, had more than 10 people on the field when uh, Sam Hartman um, basically saved their season on fourth and forever, picking up that fourth down on that scramble. So good, good for them. But uh, yeah, some of the games that we have the early games this upcoming weekend, Texas and Oklahoma. That's going to be a barn burner. We have Maryland. The Mike Loxley's are playing Ohio State. That's going to be a telling game for both Maryland, who's undefeated, and Ohio State. LSU and Missouri. That's going to be the early games, the afternoon games. You got Syracuse at North Carolina, Alabama at Texas A&M. That'll be a good watch. And, of course, George, uh, Kentucky at Georgia. And then the late afternoon game will be Notre Dame and Louisville. So a solid Saturday. I'll be watching these games while I'm getting ready to go on my cruise. Woo! As I mentioned before, no podcast next week. I will be in Cabo, taking a cruise down to Cabo, six days, leaving Sunday, coming back Saturday. For anybody looking to rob my place, um, I want you to know that my neighbors have been given the permission by me to blow your head off first, ask questions later if you're lingering anywhere near my townhouse here in Northwest Northwest Las Vegas. So don't do it. Don't do it. Again, why would you try to steal anything from my house? Anybody who is trying to break into my house is only going to be doing this for practice. If you're trying to be a professional burglar or a thief, the only reason why you would try to break into my house is just for practice because there's nothing in here worth a damn. The most important thing, the most valuable thing in my townhome is me. And again, throughout the week, I'm only worth a buck fifty at the best. So there you go, man. Try going somewhere else. So it's about time for me to uh, do that boogie break. Got to get with a little Tina. Got to get a little we'll get with a little Tina because again, I can't turn you loose. Not with my next segment with the NBA training camps opening this week. I'm never going to turn you loose without talking about the Drew Holiday trade going from Portland, even though I don't think he even crossed the Mississippi, to going to Boston. I can't turn you to loose nobody without me talking about the Major League Baseball playoffs 
Because I love talking sports. Yes, I do. Hip shaking mama, I told you. I'm in love talking sports to only you, honey baby. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Go on, Tina. Last segment of the podcast. Last segment of the program. Go ahead, Tina. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. Going to make this very quick. One of the things that I'm going to be doing uh, on my trip down to Cabo, especially on my quote-unquote days of fun when the Carnival cruise ship will be the Carnival Miracle. That's what I'll be on. We'll be taking that taking that um, voyage down to Cabo and then heading back up to Winsonada. What I'll be doing is I will really be getting into the NBA season in terms of the teams and who's going to be doing what, this, that, and the other. But basically, they've opened up this week. Um, Milwaukee made the first move to trade for Damian Lillard. Boston countered that move by trading for Drew Holiday. Now, stupidly, I went on my podcast and was speaking about, hey, Drew could be a great uh, mentor for Scoot Henderson. My bad, really wasn't thinking. I, I had just gotten the news when I went on the, uh, when I started recording. But yeah, of course they were going to trade um, Drew Holiday. And of course, teams were going to be very interested in Drew Holiday. And yes, the way Portland is trending, of course you want to get the maximum value in terms of having an asset like Drew, like uh, Drew Holiday for the long term of, um, the organization in Portland. So Portland, they traded Holiday to Boston this past Sunday. They sent uh, the Celtics sent Robert Williams the third, Gordon Malcolm Brogdon, and a couple of draft picks for uh, Holiday. So yeah, a 2024 first round pick via Golden State, and a 2029 first round pick is also heading to Portland and the Blazers. Here's interesting because if you remember with that trade that the Blazers made trading Damian Lillard to the Milwaukee Bucks. They also, um, with a three-team trade, got DeAndre Ayton from Phoenix to go over to the Trailblazers. So Portland is expected not only to keep DeAndre Ayton, but also to keep Williams. Uh, and Brogdon is likely going to be part of an additional trade upon his arrival in Portland. That's what sources said. Brogdon was uh, pretty salty throughout the uh, summer with the Boston organization as he was included in many trades. So it was a situation where Brogdon, normally a really good teammate and really a professional guy out of Virginia, played his first stint with uh, Milwaukee, then went over in a trade or went over and signed with Boston. But um, he was irked about being in trade conversations with the team. He was like, what did I do to deserve to be traded? Oh, man, this is the NBA. It's a business. The team looks after them, and you have to look after you. So um, we'll see what happens where Brogdon matriculates to. But um, 
yeah, the Blazers are doing what they're doing. It, it was a good move. You know, but the, with the Celtics, look, it was a situation where it was like, look, man, we got to go ahead. We got to see what we can do in terms of um, playing the card that we have to try to uh, remain relevant with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, especially with the move that Milwaukee made to acquire Damian Lillard. Now, people are speaking about, well, what about the defense? What about the defense? What about the defense? Drew Holiday, best two-way player in the game, or one of the best two-way players in the game, great teammate, great defender. And when you speak about the dynamics in terms of difference and defensive acumen between Lillard and Drew Holiday, there's really no contest. Well, then I would also say that may be true, but I think the chasm is even greater when you're speaking about the ability to score when you are comparing Drew Holiday to Damian Lillard and how much superior, how much more superior Damian Lillard is than Drew Holiday. And many times, many, many times when the Bucks have been stifled and have been stymied in terms of trying to win a championship is mainly because they don't have anybody who consist consistently get buckets. When a game in the playoffs goes down to half court, half court, half court, Milwaukee, maybe, the, again, this was because of the antiquated old stale offense that Mike Bootsholder had ran, but there was a situation where you really couldn't get off a quality shot or you really couldn't get a good shot. Damian Lillard in the playoffs playoffs really takes care of that situation because Lillard can get buckets against anybody in any defense at any time. So it was a situation where, yeah, you might be trading in the defensive acumen of uh, Drew Holiday to get Lillard, but I think the payoff in reverse is going to be much greater again, especially when you get to the playoffs. And if this was a situation that was agreed upon, that was smiled upon, that was high-fived upon, that was danced upon, that was hugged upon with Giannis and then the Kupo in terms of saying, yeah, go ahead and do this. Well, first things first, amongst anything, you have to make sure that Giannis and then the Kupo is happy because guess what? You in Milwaukee, you're not in LA, you're not in Miami. You're not in a free agency destination zone. So a player like Giannis for Milwaukee doesn't come around too often. And the fact that Giannis has spent over 10 years in the organization after being drafted by Milwaukee is even rare. Because a lot of times, take Oklahoma City with Kevin Durant and, uh, and others, that normally, mainly a small market team or not a, a, a team that's in a glamorous city, um, normally, they'll draft the player, but normally that player, especially if he's American, is going to be quick to want to go to L.A., is going to be quickly to want to go to Miami, is going to be quickly wanting to go to another squad to, quote-unquote, build their brand. Giannis, who is almost the antithesis of what an NBA superstar is supposed to be about in a stereotypical form, this is a guy who really doesn't care about, quote-unquote, growing his brand. This is a situation with Giannis where he's not interested in anything outside of the game of basketball in terms of where he's going to play. And for instance, Giannis doesn't need to go to L.A. to not only play basketball with the Lakers or the Clippers, but also to pursue an acting career. He doesn't need to go to New York 
uh, to play for the Nets or the Knicks because not only him being a basketball player, he also wants to uh, open up businesses and do some other things and venture capitalists and that type of stuff. He doesn't, he's not interested in hot knobbing with the, with the uh, fashion designers and all those type of things. So, you know, it's a situation where Giannis, it's just like, hey, look, man, when the season's over, I go back to Greece and I chill. So, you know, whether I'm playing in Milwaukee, whether I'm playing in Chicago, whether I'm playing in Orlando, whether I'm playing in Sacramento, whether I'm playing in Washington, whether I'm playing in L.A., wherever I'm playing in Dallas, I just want to win. I just want to win basketball games. It's the same thing with the Nikola Jokic. Hey, look, man, when that season's over, and rightfully so, he's like, get me the hell out of this country. I want to go back to Serbia, and I want to go back and be amongst my own people and do my thing and enjoy my wife and my child and have a good time. And really, I can't blame him. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Nikola Jokic ain't interested in, oh, I want to play in L.A. Why, why do I want to play in L.A. for? Or what would be the big whoop-de-damn-do of playing in L.A. or any other big market city when, you know, the, the, the minute the season ends, I'm out of here. And guess what? When I head on back to Serbia, whenever if, if we don't make the playoffs or if we win the championship, the moment, the second that the season's over, get me the hell out of this country because I'm going back to Serbia to be amongst my own people and be in a country which doesn't have as many stupid people that we have in this country. So doesn't matter with Nikola. He's like, look, I'm going to be here for nine months. So after that, I'm out of here. And, um, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to play, but, uh, you know, after I'm done, I'm not going to be like a dirt and uh, take residence up in Dallas and that type of things. Once I'm done, same thing with Luca. Once I'm done, I'm heading on back home, man. That's where I'm going to retire. You can, you know, sorry, Dallas. You know, once I retire, don't be calling me for uh, talking about shaking hands and doing stuff for the organizations and going to uh, children's hospitals and, 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 and inviting in the next, the next superstar who's going to take my torch and run with it and all that type of stuff. Don't call me because I'll be on my farm in Slovenia chilling. And that's the same thing with Nikola Jokic. Hey, man, Denver, when I retire and I go back home, guess what? I ain't never coming back here. Maybe I'll probably come back for the um, Hall of Fame, and that's about it. Other than that, don't call me for anything because I'm going to be with my horses. I'm going to be with my family. I'm going to be back in my country, and after and, 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 I, and I can't blame them. So basically what I'm saying with this is Giannis is a rare thing, a rare treasure for Milwaukee. So to go out and get Damian Lillard, if that appeases Giannis enough, and putting a championship team on the floor, if all that Giannis wants to stay in Milwaukee, then yes, you had to go ahead and you had to get uh, Damian Lillard. And for uh, Boston, um, everything is going to come down. Basically, I can understand Robert Williams the third style bender, wasn't reliable. Wasn't the guy who was going to play 82 games. Wasn't the guy that was going to play 72 games. Wasn't the guy that was, basically wasn't going to even probably play 52 to 58 games because of his injury situation. So it was a good trade for uh, Boston in that regard to get um, to get um, Holiday. My only thing is that they're pretty thin when it comes to the front court players uh, with this trade. You're going to have Holiday. You're going to have Jalen Brown. You're going to have Jason Tatum. You're going to have Christoph Porzingis. You're going to have Al Horford, what, 36 to 37-year-old Al Horford, as your starting five. You're going to have Derek White coming off the bench. That's pretty thin because who do you have after that? Uh, Luke Cornett, uh, Sam Hauser, um, Peyton Pritchard. 
who wanted to be traded after last season also because he wasn't getting any playing time. So if something happens to Porzingis, and Porzingis has had a history of injuries, or if Porzingis, when the spotlight was on him in Dallas, really didn't live up to expectations. So if he does the same in Boston, then the Celtics might be in a little bit of trouble because they lost their they lost the heart and soul of their identity in Marcus Smart, especially from the defensive side of the, the basketball. Now that is going to be filled with the skills that Drew Holiday might uh, bring to the table. But, you know, they're only a Christoph Porzingis leg injury away from possibly having some some situations moving on to the season. James Harden reported to the to uh, training camp. James Harden still wants to be traded. This is going to be interesting. James Harden. <laughs> no one can sabotage a team like James Harden. So it'll be interesting moving forward to uh, take a look at that. I will be monitoring that. And just the NBA season, I'm really looking forward to. Baseball has started. The playoffs have started. 19,000 people on Tuesday for game one, Texas versus Tampa Bay. And what's going to be their excuse? It was the middle of the day, and it's hard to get to the uh, stadium out there because I think the stadium is not in Tampa. It's in St. Petersburg or some nonsense like this. I don't give a damn. You're talking about one of the best teams consistently in Major League Baseball, and you still can't fill that place even for – the playoffs. So there you go. All right. I'm good. I'm done. I'm out of here. want to thank everybody for listening to my podcast. Um, remember, download, subscribe, rate, review, enjoy. And uh, speaking of enjoying, again, before I go, I can't turn you. I'm not going to be able to turn you loose. Not just yet, because if I do, I'm going to lose my mind if I don't mention the queen of soul. I can't never turn you loose. If I do, I'm going to lose my mind if I don't tell you the the, the 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 music that I'm going to be ending with is the Queen of Soul. I, I can't turn you to loose to nobody because, man, when it comes to Aretha, I love her, baby. Yes, I do. Woo, hip shake and mama. Do I love myself some Aretha Franklin? When it comes to her music, I'm in love with only Aretha. Honey, baby, do it, baby. Why don't you? Because I'm going to give you every Aretha feeling and passion and song that you want. Gotta, gotta, gotta. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, Aretha. Baby, hit me with some music because I just can't turn you loose.